1 Peter chapter 2, as I mentioned in my prayer, as we're preparing to come toward the Christmas season, we're going to be taking three Sundays to consider these offices of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. I was talking to David Post right before our elder prayer meeting this morning, and he said, what attribute are you guys doing today? I said, well, we finished the attributes last Sunday. He goes, oh, you exhausted that subject. I said, yes, that is, that is true. We, we did not exhaust that. And I said, who am I kidding? These are three more attributes anyway, as we look at these three at the next coming uh, Sundays for us. So why did Jesus need to take on these titles, these offices? And part of the importance of putting this before us is because we kind of need to shake ourselves free from being a little bit too familiar with these things, especially during the month of December. And so I'm hoping that it will put before you a reminder and maybe a, a bigger perspective on the person of Christ. And this morning we're going to begin with Jesus as a prophet. So you'll see on the board behind me the, the outline that we're going to be kind of following this morning. We're going to define what a prophet is so we have a, a clear understanding of that office and that role. Then we're going to look at the promise of the coming of Christ from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Then we're going to consider how Christ was the greatest prophet. And then we're going to end with exhortation and application. What do these things mean for us in 2023 here in Maple Valley? So let's start with a definition. So before we get too far into this, we need to understand Old Testament written in Hebrew, primarily. New Testament written in Greek. And both testaments use the term prophet, and they, they both have this predominant idea of somebody who speaks, who proclaims something, and specifically somebody who has received revelation from God that is supposed to speak to the people. So that's when you uh, start to compare the idea of prophet and priest. They're related, but they are distinct. So the prophet, remember, speaks for the people, excuse me, uh, well, receives revelation from God and speaks to the people what God has revealed. And the reason this is important is because we can't come to God on our own. We can't come in our own name. We can't invent our own religion. We can't come in the way that we would define. We have to come in somebody else's name. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 tells us that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So apart from someone that is a mediator for you, you can't come to God on your own. So God, because he's merciful, he likes to pursue the lost. And so he does that by setting up these two offices of priest and prophet. So the priest, chosen by God, would then offer in the Old Testament, would offer a sacrifice for his own sins that he might go to God's presence on behalf of the people. And the prophet is just the opposite. God reveals and then the prophet goes and tells people what God has said. So a prophet really is a go-between between God and the people. So now having that understanding of what a prophet is, this is what makes 
the passage that we're going to start with here so amazing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 9. And look, Peter is, is quoting from the Old Testament here. He says, but you, he's speaking of believers, those who are in Christ, those who have been saved from their sins. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So because the Lord Jesus has died for our sins, because we are united with him, we can now come to God in the name of Christ. That's why we end our prayers that way. You don't have to say that phrase at the end of your prayers. There's nothing wrong with it. But the idea is that you are praying in Jesus' name according to his will because you can't come on your own. And what's amazing about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it has the idea of both priesthood, because in Christ we can go to God on our own, but then it says that we are supposed to go and proclaim his excellencies. So we have been called to go out and be prophets in that general sense of telling everybody what God has revealed to us in his word through Christ. So this is what a prophet is. God reveals truth and they are to go and proclaim the truth to God's people. So with that, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we see this, this promise that God makes that a prophet is going to come in the future. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now before we read our, our section here, I want us to do a, a brief chronology of, of where we're at if we're in the book of, of Deuteronomy. Does anybody give like a 20-second snapshot? What's going on with the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy? What's going on with them? What's, what's about to take place? Yeah. Perfect. So God takes the nation out of Israel, excuse me, calls Israel out of Egypt and then they're supposed to go immediately into the promised land. Why did they not go into the land? Yes. Yeah, the, the text specifically tells us that they did not believe God. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But now at the end of that 40 years, they're at the, at the Jordan River. They're about to cross into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. And Moses is reviewing with everybody the law that they received at Mount Sinai. So the, the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the name technically means second law. It's not that they were given a new law. It's that he was going over the law with them a second time. And he says, this is what you need to remember. This is God's commands to you. This is his promises to you. This is what he wants you to do as a nation when you get into the land. And so he's, he's gathering the people right before they go in, and, and this is the context where Moses is speaking. Now look at verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is speaking here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You shall say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So one of the fascinating studies of the Old Testament is the, these pictures or these prophecies of what's going to happen in the future, sometimes called a type and an anti-type. So the type is the picture in the Old Testament. It's an actual, real, historical event, but it's foreshadowing something greater that's going to happen in the future. So here we have in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God making a promise that there will be a prophet who God raises up that is like Moses. So Moses is the type. He's a real person. He ministered to God's people. He's about 120 years old at this point when he's, he's, an, he's um, addressing the, the congregation in the wilderness. But he's just a picture of what God's going to do in the future. There's going to be a greater prophet. There's going to be an anti-type, a fulfillment of someone that's even greater than Moses. And this we see is actually a promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a responsible Bible scholar, and I have you in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I just told you that this is a prophecy of Christ, what would be a necessary question that you would want to ask of me or of the text? You take a shot at it? Okay. Prove it. How do you know this is talking about Christ? Christ is not mentioned here. The reason I bring this up is because a lot of people will get so infatuated with types and anti-types that they'll try to read that into everywhere in the Old Testament, and sometimes they're legitimately not there. So how do we know this is talking about Jesus? How do we figure that out? Or how do we confirm that it's not talking about Jesus if I'm wrong? How do you determine that? You guys are too trusting. You're just, we believe you. Just tell us. You guys need to remember to be Bereans, Acts 17. You know, trust. Um, check everything that is taught according to what? The scriptures, right? Does the Bible tell us 
that there's a connection between Deuteronomy 18 and the person of Christ? That's the question, right? Well, there is. Turn to Acts chapter 3. So in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is telling the people that God has made a promise that a prophet will arise among the people from the nation of Israel that will be like Moses. And God says, I'm going to put my words in his mouth. And he says, you are to heed everything he says. Now, when the people heard that, as a nation, they began to look for this prophet that's coming. They're starting to try to figure out who, who is it, when is he going to come, because God didn't say when. And in fact, in John chapter 1, you don't, you don't have to turn there, but if you remember, when, when John the Baptist stepped into his public ministry, his role was to prepare the way for Christ. He was the forerunner. But John was so compelling in his ministry, in his preaching, that people were drawn to him, and, and he was so persuasive that listen to what the people say when John is giving his testimony. This is John 1, verse 19. It says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And then the people said, are you the prophet? They're thinking back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. God is going to raise up a prophet among our people. Are you that prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18? And John flatly says, I am not. But it tells you that the people are looking. They're trying to anticipate the coming of this, this prophet. So now in Acts chapter 3, we get the connection here. It's actually connected again later with the testimony of Stephen later on in the, in the book of Acts. But I wanted just to, to choose one for us to kind of take a look at here. Acts chapter 3. Now, in your thinking, again, responsible Bible scholar, when you hear Acts chapter 2, what event should come to your mind? Very good. The day of Pentecost. What's significant about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Yeah, so it's the beginning of the church. God sends his Holy Spirit to fill his people, and he starts to build his church, which is exactly what Jesus promised in uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16. So in Acts chapter 2, the, the Spirit comes. Now the apostles are going out to proclaim the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit. They start to do these miracles to confirm the fact that they are God's spokesmen. So at the beginning of chapter 3, there is a, a lame beggar, and it says that he was crippled from the time of his birth. And Peter walks up to this man, and the man asks him for money, right? And Peter I'm probably going to quote more of the children's song than the actual text. You guys know what song I'm talking about? Silver and gold have I not? It's actually a very faithful rendering of, of the text. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
of Nazareth rise up and walk. And they heal this man, and he stands up. Now, what's significant about this particular event is that this guy was well-known around the area. Everybody saw this man. He had been crippled since he was born, and his whole life after he's become an adult is relying on other people giving him money. That's why he's asking for money. He's, he's destitute because he's crippled. But Peter heals him. This, this miraculous healing, he restores his legs. He's able to stand up. He's walking and leaping and praising God, right? And now all the, this crowd starts to gather because of this miracle. This is kind of the setting of what I want you to, to see here of this passage. So let's pick up in verse 11. It says, while he was clinging to Peter and John, that's the man who had just been healed. Isn't that interesting? That very like first person uh, eyewitness. I mean, why was this guy clinging to them? I mean, how would you respond if someone had reached down and healed you from this this crippling disease, you would be so grateful, right? He's clinging to them because he is, he's overjoyed. So while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Pe- Peter saw this, he replied to the people. This is, he turned to the crowd. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know You acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Verse 22, Moses said, quote, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything that he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Peter heals this man through the power of the Holy Spirit. The people gather. He says, it wasn't my power that did this. It was God's power. And he says, by the way, you put to death 
the Prince of Life, the Righteous One. This is the prophet that God raised up. This is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And by the way, Peter says, you are to listen and obey everything that Jesus says. So this brings in all of the Old Testament because Jesus inspired the Old Testament through his spirit. Jesus appointed his apostles in the New Testament to write our 27 books of the New Testament. Everything in the Bible are the words of Jesus. So the question then, are you obeying the words of Jesus? When you hear the Bible taught, when you open the Bible on your own and you read it, are you heeding what it says? Last summer when we went to summer camp, we all got our shirts, right? What's it say on it? Doers of the word. We are not to be those who merely hear what the Bible says. We are to obey it. We are to do what it says. So do you obey the words of Christ in the Bible? And more than that, Peter says you are to obey everything that Jesus says. You don't get to just obey the ones that you're comfortable with and you already have good habits around. Everything that Christ has told us is something that we should obey. Are you doing that? Are you reading the Bible? You guys realize that God has spoken. He has put it written. He has preserved this word not only as a gift and a blessing for you, but you are now responsible and you will be held accountable to know what is inside this book. And not only to know what it is, but to obey what it says. The prophet has come and you are to heed everything he says. So Jesus is that prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And not only that, but he is the greatest prophet who has ever come. I want you guys to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. I want you to listen to the way that these verses describe the greatness of Christ. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he as has inherited a more excellent name than they. So look at verse 1 here for just, just a minute. The author of, of Hebrews starts his book and tells us that God spoke. And he mentions four different aspects of God's speaking. It's all in verse 1. 
God spoke, first of all, what? Long ago. Second, to who? The fathers in the prophets. Thank you, William. And in many portions and in many ways. Technically five things there, I guess. We're going to break out those last two on their own. So he spoke long ago to the fathers. When we say fathers, who are we speaking about? Yeah. Yeah. So they are the beginning of the work that God was doing to, to start the nation of Israel, who then was going to be the springboard for the church being grafted into the promises given to Abraham, right? You guys realize that if you're a Gentile, or even if you're a Jewish person that's in Christ and you're saved, the only reason that you have salvation is because God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. Jesus came and presented himself to the, the, the Jewish nation when he took on human flesh and they, re, they rejected him. And then he sent his disciples to go and preach to the Gentiles. Now God is going to be faithful to go back to Israel and redeem them. But if you're in Christ, it's because God made a promise to the fathers. So that's talking about those that God chose at the beginning of, of his plan of redemption. So he spoke to the fathers, and then he says, in the prophets, that was his spokespeople, God revealed things, the prophets then go and told people about it. And then it says, in many portions, an interesting phrase in the Greek, it's as best we can understand, this is the New Testament's way of describing the 39 books of the Old Testament. Those are the portions of revelation that God gave in the Old Testament. So in many portions, but then he says, in many ways. God spoke a lot of different ways in the Old Testament, and some of those ways were surprising. You might say creative. What are some of the unique ways that God brought about revelation in the Old Testament? What are some of the more... Uh, you, uh, unique ways that, that stand out from your Old Testament uh, memory banks. What's that? Visions. visions, right. So God gave visions to people, and he used that to bring revelation. Yeah. The writing on the wall in the book of Daniel, right? You see the handwriting, and the king is then fearful because it says, you have been weighed in the balance, and you have been found lacking. Yes. The burning bush. Very good. Yeah. What else? What's that? Yeah, Gideon's fleece, right? Gideon puts out, and God was so patient with Gideon because he kept asking, kept asking. It's like, man, Gideon, you're, uh, you're, on, you're on shaky ground there, but God was gracious to him. Yeah. Yeah, we saw his power, right? It wasn't revelation in terms of speaking, but... We see God's nature on display, sure. We have the, the talking donkey. You have all these different unique ways. That's what verse 1 is saying, that God spoke in all these different ways. But then he says in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. This is God's final word. This is the last way that God is going to speak to his created world. 
all the written records that he's preserved over these many thousands of years, we now have a record of who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has taught. So there's something called progressive revelation. So if you kind of start in the book of Genesis and you start reading through chronologically, you'll see what God does in revealing pieces of his truth and he starts to build this bigger picture over time. If you just have the Old Testament, you have God's truth, but there's a mystery to it because we don't have the full context until you get to the New Testament. So when God is giving this revelation throughout the Old Testament in many portions, in many ways, he says, but in these last days, the final thing that God has said is I'm going to send my son. And the New Testament is the direct words in the teachings of Jesus. The first four books are recording his life, his ministry, his miracles, obviously his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. The rest of the New Testament is reflecting on his life. Acts is a history of the church that he built. And then you have all of the epistles talking about the teachings of what Jesus said. All of the, the writers of the New Testament are commenting through the Holy Spirit on what Jesus taught. And what's the main message of the book of Revelation? What's the big idea in Revelation? Christ is coming back. So God's final word to us is in Christ. He is that prophet. He is the greatest prophet. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. So Jesus is God's final word, and he is the prophet that we are to listen to everything that Jesus says. Have you guys read the entire Bible? Do you guys realize that every word in here is from Christ? And that you're responsible to know and heed what this book says. So we need to be in this book constantly. We need to be in it daily. So what does this mean for us this morning? Considering that Christ is the prophet, there's a couple things I want to put before you. Number one, it tells us that God is only going to speak in his word. Jesus came and proclaimed to us the truth. Jesus also authored and oversaw through his providence the writing of the Old Testament. That means that everything that God is going to say to us, he has recorded to us in his word. The reason this is important because you're going to, as you begin to grow and study and, and get more um, access as you're older to different churches and ministries and convictions and things that people say, you'll hear people say things like, um, God uses visions and dreams today, or God spoke to me, or I, uh, God told me to do this, or this is a sign that God wants me to do. And you have to understand that God will only speak through his word. Now, does God guide his people? Yes. Is God providential to prompt you to do things? Yes, of course. The problem is when you get a prompting, 
or a thought or like, maybe I should do this. It's like, I don't, is that God? It might be, but we don't know that. There's no light that goes off in our head that says, hey, this is the Holy Spirit. Listen to this prompting. Because you guys know that we have promptings to do something that we really want to do, but we shouldn't. So our promptings and our thought processes are not reliable. So what do you do when you're, you're prompted to do something? How do you know that it's something that God wants you to do? We'll check to see if it agrees with Scripture. If it doesn't violate anything that God has said, great. Maybe God is prompting you to do that. But make sure that you go through the standard of what the Bible says first. So God will only speak to us in his word. I want you guys to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter confirms this idea to us, this whole contrast of experience versus the written word. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he starts in verse 16. He says, We didn't put together like an inventive way of telling you who Jesus was. If you look through the book of Acts, the apostles, when they went out to preach, you know what they constantly did? They kept quoting the Old Testament. Peter says, we didn't invent things. We didn't make up our own cleverly devised tales. We went back to the Old Testament because that's, that's all they had at that time because they were developing the New Testament when they preached. They went back to the Word. They didn't go with their own invention. And then he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What does he mean by that? Look at verse 17. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's making reference to a very specific event that happened in the life of the disciples. They're on a mountain. They hear God speak about the glory of Christ. What event is he referring to? Yes, the transfiguration. So he says, we were on the mountain, we saw Christ transformed. There is no greater experience than this. But look what he says. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Peter's saying, I don't trust my experiences, as amazing as that was. He says, I go back to the word, which is more sure. It's written, it's objective, it's God's truth, it's reliable. He says, we go back to the word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So this is complementary to 
him saying, when the prophet comes, you are to heed everything that he says. He says here, you will do well to pay attention. The reverse is true. If you do not pay attention to the words of Jesus, it will not go well for you because you are now responsible. I think almost every single person in this room has a Bible on their lap, which I'm grateful for. He says, but now you know this is my word. You need to pay attention to it. You need to heed what it says. Do you guys realize that being saved from your sins is actually a command in the Bible? In Acts chapter 17, Paul's on Mars Hill. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to come back as a judge? And he says, if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will not go well for you. Because God has told you. He's told you about the gospel. He's told you about your sin. He says you need to turn from your sin. You need to believe in Christ. You need to come to salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. It is commanded of you to do that. James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness... That and all of that remains of wickedness. It says, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Like I thought, I thought God was the one that saves people. He does. But what tool does he use? He uses the scripture. The word of God can save your soul. It's amazing. So for the unbeliever, you are commanded to repent. You are commanded to bow the knee to Christ. You are commanded to come to salvation. God is commanding you to do something that will be your greatest blessing. Because our condition is so bad that we don't do what is best for us. God says, I am telling you, come to salvation in Christ. That's for the unbeliever. What about the believer? Think for a minute what a gift the words of Christ are. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Speaking of things that we're way too familiar with, I want you to kind of read through this verse here with, with new eyes as best you can. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
Next Sunday, we'll consider the fact that Jesus is the high priest. But I want you to consider here that God's word is living and active. When you are in this book, it will change you. It will transform you into who you should be in Christ. So this is a, this is a precious gift. When you guys are not reading your Bible, you're cutting yourself off from spiritual oxygen. You're cutting yourself off from spiritual food and sustenance. How long has it been since you've been in the Bible on your own? Is it a habit to be in the Word every day? It's like this book will change you. It will begin to make a spiritual transformation in your life to make you more like Christ. It's living and active. It's amazing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what for, but for what it really is, the word of God, listen, which also performs its work in you who believe. If you guys are struggling spiritually, it's usually related to a lack of being in the word or a lack of obeying what the word says. This book will perform a work within you. If you're not sure if you're saved, if you don't know if your sins have been forgiven, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Open up the Bible, read, pray. God, am I forgiven of my sins? Do I know Christ as my Savior? And you need to, you need to saturate yourself with this book until you find out. And then once you come to Christ... Keep saturating yourself with this book because it is your, your lifeblood daily. And so to kind of underscore this, I want to just end with reading you a, a passage here. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19, look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Think about what verse 10 is saying. The Bible is greater than, more desirable than not only gold, gold that is fine or precious or of highest value, and much of that fine gold. It's a three-tier exponential underscore emphasis on how important and valuable the Word of God is. It, is. it is more desirable than much fine gold. What is What are your most precious possessions in life? He says, you put that against the Scriptures, and the scriptures outweigh them all. Why? Listen to what it does. 
End of verse 10. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the Scriptures, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Do you guys realize that there are spiritual problems in your life to the point where you don't even see what they are? You have spiritual blind spots that you're not even aware of. And the Bible, by God's grace, can show you what those are so that you can confess them and turn from them because God is, is gracious. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. God, there's things about me that I don't even see or realize. Verse 13, also keep back your servant, your servant from presumptuous sins. Those are the ones that you know about and you still choose to do. He says, restrain me from that. By the Scriptures, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Verse 14 says both the external, what I say, and the internal, my meditations. I want to be innocent, I want to be pure, I want to be clean, and I can only do that through the power of the Word. God will use the Scriptures to do its work in you. So take up the Bible, read it, meditate on it, memorize it, talk about it with other believers, and you're going to be held accountable for what the Bible says. Do you know it? And every single one of us might say, to some level, but I need to know it better. One of the great thrills of having been a believer now for a number of years is that I have, when I go back and read a section of the Bible that I've read before, I have a greater understanding because what God has taught me from the past. And so you go back to these books that you used to study and you read it again, you're like, and now I understand even more than I did before because this book is inexhaustible. And then we need to do what it says. Peter says, you are to heed everything that Jesus Christ says. And by the way, his law is good. That's why in Psalm 119, 97, it says, oh, how I love your law. And then he says, it's my meditation all the day. Do you think about the Bible throughout the day? Do you think about the words of Christ? Let us be grateful that Christ came as the prophet, the one who fulfilled Deuteronomy 18, and he spoke words to us, and his words give life if you come to him. Let's pray. Lord, give us a greater hunger for the scriptures. Give us a fuller understanding of what your word says. Father, I pray for any in here that may not know if they're in Christ, I pray that they wouldn't let today go by without opening up the word and praying and asking, Lord, do I belong to you? Have my sins been removed? So let them not just ignore it as class ends. Father, for your children in the room, I know there are many here that do love you and do love your word, and, and we are inconsistent in our, our habits, and so I pray that you would strengthen us our spiritual daily habits to be 
spending time in your word and, and praying to you and expressing back to you the things that we're learning and seeing in the scriptures. And thank you, Father, that you have spoken and that you spoke as a, as a final word in Christ. And so now we go as your church to sing praises to you and your son in your spirit. And we come to you, not in our own name, but in the name of Christ.